Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. Then we can begin in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Fragments of silicon. Hoping you stay dry, even if that's monumentally unlikely. Welcome to another uh, installment of Fragments of Silicon, um, pre-Hurricane Edition. Uh, yeah, more on that later, but um, I'm your host, Adam, and joining me, as always, is um, all the crew. Full board this uh, this day. So, we've got uh, Ogre. I'm very tired. <laughs> um, Petty Fan. Are we smooth bore or rifle bore? Galax. I am tired and also kind of wet. And Twilight. I'm alive. <laughs> okay. Well, on that um, energetic note, let's see. Um, Ogre, why don't you go into the details of why you're so tired this week? <sighs> on Saturday, Nock and Barry got married. Oh, so... man. Yep, they typed the knot then. Spent all day, with the, almost all day there. Jeez. Like, mm. yeah. Yeah, weddings tend to take up a whole day, even if you don't plan them to. I got there around 10. Didn't get home till about 7.30 or so. But it was a fun, it was a nice little experience and everything. I was the best man because... Because they couldn't yeah, find kind anyone of. better? Uh, no. I probably could have found someone better, but I guess I was just the, the one who's known him the longest, so... Alright. Uh, so that, like, entire week was kind of filled with exhausting doing, going about and doing stuff. Like, we had these quote-unquote bachelor party, which is just us going to a Japanese steakhouse and eating there for a bit. Then we hung out Sunday for... because a bunch of friends came up. It was Bear, Goron, and Lenny came up for the wedding as well. And Sunday was the last day we were all going to be together for that, so... We went out and played mini golf. Oh man! Monday. Did everyone, did everyone let Naka win? I can't remember if he won or not. I think he did. 
I but also got... Naka could be good at mini golf, so that's Probably. the thing. I know, it was just a joke. I actually got three holes and ones, but then I got a bunch of sixes as well, so kind of all averaged out to fifth place. Uh, then Monday we hung out and did a bit of a stream there. And I could have fallen asleep Monday and woken up next Monday and still felt like I wasn't completely rested from all that. Which is to say, probably they are fairly fucking exhausted themselves because of everything. Because uh, they had to bear every brunt of that whole wedding ceremony, so... I think they're just happy to have it all done and over with so they can finally sleep for a while. They've been together for like 100,000 years, so... <laughs> uh, that, that was kind of part of my best man speech, was that it felt like Barry was involved in every memory that Nock and I have had, so... I mean, I kind of remember some time period where she wasn't there, but that really feels like a long, <laughs> another lifetime. Other than that, we uh, we didn't record Monday, obviously. We did record the Monday prior, so that whole TMNT thing was <laughs> done on one day. And, and then a little bit, the, the next episode into that, Next, let's play into that. Right. Like, you haven't exactly been subtle about it. Then another, we'll probably do another arcade game, and then something for Halloween. Just huh. to get that out of the way. Maybe this is the year he finally remembers to do Doom. Uh, oh, I thought you were going to say Dead Space, and I was like, I don't know anymore. That I end up doing with... Dead Space 3, and then I'll be upset because it ended on a cliffhanger that was kind of a terrible thing, and then I might have to just strangle EA for a bit. Uh, not, uh, not an uncommon feeling towards EA for a bit. Yeah. I was about to say, I'm pretty sure you'd have to be join a line for that. I think, that's the, I think that's the Mass Effect set uh, in the front uh, currently. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they still have to wait behind everyone else who got screwed over before them, so... Yeah, I mean, it's a long line. But they're, they're still the ones who got the very blatant, well, all of your moral choices add up to choosing which color the ending cinematic will be. Other than that, uh, not a whole lot this week. It's just the cool-down period for afterwards and all that, so... Thankfully, I get to sleep in for once. Every once in a while. Except for Tuesday, where I woke up early for the interview and then found out it was in the afternoon. I was like, fuck, I'm still awake. Who cares? <laughs> you showed up. So. Yeah. Thank well, apparently we got 2 o'clock and 1 o'clock mixed up, but other than that... Time zones. I know. Anyway, okay. I... Yeah, that's pretty much about it for me, so... Next. Alright, uh, Galax, why did you go? Well, my parents just got home from their, uh... vacation literally a couple hours before I got home today. So they're settling back in. Um, I'm tired mostly because the cat woke me up two times last night. I don't have anything as dramatic as ogres. Um... 
and it's been pretty rainy the last few days here, which I think are uh, mostly or possibly related to spinoffs from hurricane weather, but thankfully it's not that bad here because nothing is... Rainstorms don't usually get that bad this far north on account of cold water and stuff. Right. Doesn't mean it's fun, but... Um... Uh, I finished the single-player mode in Splatoon 2 the other day. That was nice, because now I can get those other Amiibo costumes from Callie and Marie. Uh, Splatfest that was past weekend was also fun. Um, and uh, I need to get around to playing the games for this week, because both of the ones for this week that I have, I think, have some kind of multiplayer stuff. So mm. probably good to get in some practice beforehand. Mm-hmm. Other than that, that's about all I got, I think. Okay. Twilight? Um, well, as I said uh, last week, um, there was a family medical concern that took place. And that's come to pass, and it's turned out well. Yeah. My aunt had ended up in the hospital because of a knee stroke. Oh. But she's recovered. That's good. Yeah, she's been released, and she's as lively as ever. Understatement there. <laughs> um. Anyway, um, and my mother's now got a new PC after our old one. Might as well be, be said the died. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, and um, besides that, I've been playing um the two games we have for review this week, and that'll be it for me. All right. Um, Petty Pan Europe. Um, I think I've basically completed Sonic Mania except for like two um blue sphere medals and maybe some other achievements but yeah I, I kind of put a lot of time into that game I'm shocked yeah and it's is it shocking. bad I'm debating buying it again for PC <laughs> like alright some call me Johnny I'll, I already bought it twice because I ordered it for PC and then it got delayed and I bought it on the Switch when it came out. Yeah. It, it's a really good game. People should buy it. <laughs> cough, cough. Yeah. Uh, are you glad you you didn't get the pre-order or? Um, well, it's more I didn't need. I already had the original Sonic game. Right. So and originally I was going to get the collector's edition, but I had to cancel that. That's what I'm talking about. Like that that um, really huge statue that's really um, shitty. <laughs> I've heard mixed things about the quality, yeah. but it's definitely really huge, and it's not like solid. It's light. Yeah. It's like eh, I still might see about getting if I see it cheap on eBay. But like throwing seventy dollars on it right now isn't exactly a doable thing. Oh, let's see. Aside from that, I need to get to playing games for the show this week, and um, not really a whole lot. Okay. Like, like Final Fantasy's still been a thing, and I've also shot off some emails for guests for MSP. Yeah. We'll talk more about that um, after this. I suppose. I mean... Any conversation without Mac is not going to go anywhere. 
Yeah. Anyway, um, as far as it's my go, yep. Like, okay, first thing is well, I mean, um, as we are recording this, um, let's see, we are a couple days out, um, maybe three, four days uh, from Hurricane Irma hitting uh, the mainland of Florida. Um, right now, it's set to ravage Puerto Rico and Cuba. And, yeah, and basically my whole state is in a, a literal state of emergency. Like, um, I had to spend a large portion of yesterday preparing for that as best could be prepared because um, it's been uh, very panicky. Uh, even as far north as uh, I am, uh, wasn't able to secure any bottled water yesterday because um it's all gone Holy like shit. that shit yeah I, i'm like that shit's getting um purchased five ten minutes off the pallets yeah and, and even if of, it's not a lot of like a lot of spare stock here is being sent to texas yeah I, i'm like and i'm sure and you know um gas shortages are starting uh glad uh, the cars filled up was filled up beforehand um you know um basically a lot of preparation right now although as far as evacuation that may or may not happen it, it's we're still too far out from um the actual path and the results to really know what's going to happen other than um it looks like south florida um you know miami florida keys area is going to get hit and then most models have it tracking up the east coast and then it's going to hit um, South Carolina or North Carolina again. I'm like, but it could still move more, well, eastward. Yeah, for and those of you who don't know a lot about um, hurricanes, when they hit land, they do funny shit. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm like, hopefully it's not, well, hopefully it gets downgraded before it hits because, you know, it, it, it it's a um record-setting cat five right now but it's still got a few um caribbean islands to go through before it hits florida hmm. and so right now Not that we're hoping that those islands get smashed too much either but no yeah. but i mean speaking personally I, I i'd rather not you know have that thing be as big as it is Oh no! Yeah, I know. I, I I just I have a friend who watches the show sometimes. She's in the Dominican Republic, so. Right. Uh, I'm like I'm not sure if it's planning uh, if it's gonna hit Hispaniola though. Like, um, I think that I think it's, uh, it's like right between Puerto Rico and Cuba. So. Yeah, I, I'm like, like I said, I'm not sure if it, like, all the news has been um about you know, um Antigua and Barbuda, um. Bermuda, uh, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. You know, I, I haven't heard anything about the Dominican Republic or Haiti, uh, is what I'm saying. So I don't know how much in the blast zone uh, that island is, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is. Uh, so everything's kind of touch and go at the moment. Now, it's like it's hunkered down now, but, um, you know, may have to evacuate. Um, later on, uh, and even then, um, 
I don't know what the hurricane does to this show because um, even if we don't get like the brunt or like even if we get like the outer bands, um, we could still be out uh, without electricity for a while. I'm like that happened to me back in 2005 um, when Hurricane Francis hit Jacksonville, and I was without power for a week. It's not something I'd recommend. No, that sounds really, really sucky. Yeah, so basically, I guess a programming note, if we don't go live with our review Sunday at our usual time, I'll start Mm -hmm. streaming about 30 minutes after. Right. Um, Yeah, we will get back to everything um, as soon as possible. I mean, we we do have, um, like, guests lined up and all that stuff, but... Um, if they have to be delayed because of the weather, then so be it. Because, yeah, this show, um, truth be told, isn't really um, built to function without me. Right. And it's not like we can just say, please, Mr. Stormmeister, aim the hurricane slightly to the left. Um, right. I guess kind of a question. Have you um, <laughs> let the like um, devs and publishers who gave us games for review know that they could be delayed because of the storm if you lose power? Not yet. I'm like one of the things on the list. If it comes up to it, it's something I can't do until it happens. Fair enough. Like because, um, you know, everything uh, like until it ha- you know, until the delay actually happens, because it um, could potentially not happen. I've been through a lot of hurricane scares over the years, and a lot of it is um, not as bad as uh, it ends up being. Um, occasionally it is, but uh, I'm like, I don't know what's going to go on, especially with this area. So, I'm like, um, things get delayed. Um, we'll take care of it um, in its due course. Outside of the, that, um, it's business as usual. Like, um, and I think that's about all I can report uh, about that situation at present time. Probably we'll have an update because we are planning to do a um, multiplayer session on Friday, and it should be a lot clearer about where um, the hurricane's going to move. So, um, because I think it's expected to make landfall about Saturday sometime. I'm remembering the models. Um, Anyway, um, so on that cheery note, uh, it's about time to move to the interview portion of the broadcast and joining us uh, this week is a man who has had a very storied career within the industry. Um, it's been a while we've had somebody who's had this long a career, but it's always nice when we do. Um, welcome to the program, uh, Chris Avalone. Hey, thanks for having me guys, appreciate it. No problem, no problem. All right, let's see. So we like to start things by um, beginning at the beginning. Specifically, um, what inspired you uh, to get into video games, both on a personal and a professional level? Uh, So uh, that's an interesting question. Um, It basically came down to I noticed that whenever I had free time, I would either be uh, wishing I could play Dungeons & Dragons or, if I couldn't do that, uh, GMing a game of Dungeons & Dragons with my friends. And that occurred to me that's probably, if there is a career path that allows me to do that full-time, that's kind of what pushed me uh, into designing for video games. And I had no idea there was even 
a career like that, I thought, oh, you know, I might get lucky if I, you know, write for pen and paper games. But to get into computer games, I don't, I don't know if they even had a job description that was computer game writer at the time when I, when I was interested in it. Based on uh, other people we've talked to, not really, not back in those days. No, actually, even the idea of a designer was kind of new. Like uh, Blizzard, uh, Blizzard didn't have design positions, and everyone uh, who did game design was basically usually just the programmer that was working on the game itself. Yeah, a designer was even a new thing. Yeah, uh, I'm like, uh, yeah, back in those days, uh, people wore a lot of hats. Yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting how the industry has come full circle because you know now a small team of like three or four people can can do a game with a lot of the technology out there. And, and but back then that was also the case too. Usually it was like maybe you know two or three people, if that, doing a game. So the, the teams were usually just really very small. Yeah, I certainly heard a lot of that back in the '80s, and you know even going all the way back to the uh, early '70s uh, or late '70s actually. Back in the ancient days of yore, yes. Yes. We've actually had a few people who got their start in the late 70s. By the way, what's the famous song for your podcast? It rocks. Oh, uh, that's um, well, uh, that's an original composition uh, done by our former music director. Wow, like, well, kudos to him. It, really, it's, uh, it was really energizing. <laughs> thank you. Like, uh, that, that is the point. Some people have uh, not been so kind to it, like, you know, because it, uh, it is pretty heavy. But uh, uh, getting back to um, the question at hand, um, so how did the pen and paper love transition into the video game industry? Well, uh, because a number of game companies saw that this is going to sound very mercenary, so so brace yourselves. Um, so because Dungeons and Dragons was such a popular franchise. Uh, people in the computer game industry learn pretty quickly that if you have that franchise associated with, you know, any role-playing game, that's going to help drive the sales for it. So they looked very heavily for people that, you know, had Dungeons & Dragons experience, were game masters. And um, uh, at the time, there was a company called Interplay Entertainment, which is headed by Brian Fargo, uh, who now runs NXL Entertainment. And he uh, had a division called Dragon Play, which was focused on doing D&D games. So uh, someone I knew from the pen and paper industry was like, hey, like, hey, Chris, I, I know you're probably a starving artist and will probably be forever as long as you work in pen and paper games. Uh, why don't you apply to Dragon Play and see if there's any chance they might want to hire you on a, jun a junior designer? They just got the Planescape license. You know, they're doing stuff with Forgotten Realms. You know, you're probably pretty happy there. It's all the way in California. And I'm like, okay, sure. So I applied and uh, got hired, and they started mining me for my D&D knowledge. Funny uh, story about Forgotten Realms. We had Ed Greenwood on our other podcast a couple really? weeks ago. Really? How was that? It was interesting. It was, uh, yeah. I I'm like, uh, he has a depth of knowledge that is um, profound. I imagine he has a lot of stuff to share. I just call him Elminster. Like, I don't even bother calling him Ed anymore. I'm just like, Elminster. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, geez, I think we we barely scratched the surface and <laughs> like, we'll definitely have him back on the uh, on the sister program. Like, um, anyway, so um, what period of time was this when you first got hired by um, Interplay? Oh, wow. Um, geez, I'm going to say it was probably around 1994, I think. I, and 
I could have this all wrong. Usually I try and research this stuff so my brain doesn't go south. Um, and also I'm so great with numbers. Uh, but yeah, I think it was like early 1990s and then, you know, worked for a few years on, you know, various projects they had. And uh, I think I was there for about 10 years. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, like, uh, that's a... Yeah, that's about when Interplay was starting to have its troubles, if I'm remembering correctly. That is correct. Yeah, around, uh, um, you know, the 2004, 2005, yeah, Interplay was just uh, sort of hemorrhaging money, and they had a lot of debts to pay. You know, Brian Fargo had departed, like, a few years back. It was in the hands of some French company named Titus. Uh, yeah, and then uh, Black Isle was starting to fall apart, and, yeah, it, the future did not look great. <laughs> I mean, that actually, um, from uh, other Interplay people we've talked to, that actually started around the mid-90s. Yeah, oh, it was, I, as I understand it, it was, a, it was a slow burn like that. It was a number of decisions that, that, that led to that, uh, that final part. Like, the market was changing. There was a heavier focus on consoles. Uh, a lot of Interplay's business model had a lot to do with uh, let's turn out 30 games, and if two of them are a hit, that covers the rest of them. But yeah, there, there was a lot of things that uh, contributed to it. But yeah, around around 2004, it was definitely very, very bad. Yeah, and yet through it all, Interplay um, is still a thing that exists. That is right. It is still alive and kicking. I mean, not much, um, but it's still alive. Like. Yeah, I don't. I don't actually know what their headcount is. I think last I heard, and, and this could be incorrect, I think they have about ten people uh, working there. Um, but you know, they still had a pretty large portfolio to draw upon with you know old games they could convert to you know other platforms. And uh, I think they were even planning to sell off some of their franchises not long ago. So you know, who knows how they're doing now? Um, I can actually answer that question because. Yay! All right, let's hear it. Um, uh, we uh, had Rebecca Heineman on our sister show. Oh, uh, yeah, Becky. Yeah, I'm like, um, not too long ago. And she's actually working with the current Interplay. And um, I don't know about their headcount, but, yeah, they. Um, she says they don't have a lot of money. That that's, And she's helping bringing their uh, old games to Steam. And she kind of has to do it piecemeal because of their financial constraints. I believe it. Yeah, Becky's really rad. I really like her. Yeah, yeah, she's... Always a fun time when we have our on our shows. <laughs> like, uh, but anyway, um, so what, what was the first game you um, worked on at Interplay? Ooh, that's tough. Um, so there, there were a number of ones that never went beyond the paper stage. Um, uh, some of the early titles I worked on was Descent to Under Mountain, which overall was a great team that was following a really bad idea. Um, and uh, eventually that came out. That, that's probably the most praise that I can I can give it. But they, they were a good bunch of guys that were working on it. Um, the other ones were Conquest of the New World. Uh, I worked a little bit on uh, Star, Trek, uh, Star Trek Starfleet Academy. Uh, and probably a whole bunch of ones I'm forgetting. But uh, those three kind of stand out. There, there were a lot of projects that sort of got started and then got canceled and got started and got canceled. But um, those are the three big ones that I remember. Mm. Not an uncommon refrain from uh, Interplay. Actually, it's pretty common for a lot of studios to do a lot of different game pitches that really just never get off the ground. Um, one of my mottos that I, you know, if 
I try and I try and share with with uh, people just getting into the game industry is to please not take it too hard if one of your projects gets canceled or if someone doesn't like accept your pitch, because that is a very, very common thing across the industry. When pitching a game, you might be lucky if you get through 10 or 11 different pitches of different ideas before one finally sticks. And also you probably haven't been around the industry long enough if you haven't had one of your games canceled. <laughs> or they came in through different means because <laughs> I'm like, we do a lot of indie games on this program and you know, we talk to a lot of um, um, people who are just entering the uh, video game industry, but you know, they're doing it through their own project. Good. I yeah. always advocate that. You know, I was at um, one college and uh, a group of students working on a project, which which looked really cool. They came up to me and they were very excited about the prospect of getting into triple A game development. Like they wanted to work for you know, you know, Ubisoft or some big big developer. And I really. <laughs> My first reaction was, why? Why do you want that? And they were like, well, your you know, souls are too pure. Don't do it. Well, you know, it was a it was a, a long answer. I don't know if I flooded them with too much information, but I was like, look, if you go to a, if you go to a big developer, a big publisher, what you do is going to be very narrow in scope. Like you're going to learn a lot about how the industry uh, pipeline works for projects, but the amount of stuff that you get to do versus what you'd be able to do in an indie project and how much more you would learn on an indie project, it's miles apart. So I actually encourage them to please stay in indie development because they're probably going to be stronger developers for it. You're not wrong, uh, especially since, well, you know, in a lot of indie developments, it's not just, well, the developments, it, you know, it, it's the everything. Now, yep. As you said about going full full circle, you know, uh, so much of the indie uh, industry now is not just you know developing a game, but um, getting it out there. Yep, and uh, that's absolutely true. The uh, you have to learn how to form like uh, put press kits together. Uh, you have to make your own press contacts. You have to learn quite a bit about marketing, distribution channels. Uh, you, you know, and unfortunate it is you have to learn a lot about even rolling, like like running a very small company, which is fraught with its own series of issues. But you will learn you will learn a lot. And even if it seems exhausting at the end of the day, you still have much more knowledge than you would have than if you went to a big developer. Definitely. Uh... You know, I mean, uh, it, it's a risky path. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, um, we have we've had developers on this program, you know, who whose project you know got you know got released, but you know just didn't make it in the marketplace. Yep, it's hard to get noticed. You know, and it can be a heavy hit too, considering um, because these are independent projects. Um, a lot of their own financial resources are tied to the project. Yep. So uh, I'm like, that, that's why so many people have been um, worried about this uh, so-called indie apocalypse. You know, because th th there's just so many games coming out um, for, you know, Steam, iOS, what have you. And, you know, 10 years ago, you could make a really brilliant indie game and people would notice, you know, these days I'm like, unless you got a hook to your thing, like um, say Stardew Valley, <laughs> you might not be noticed. 
No, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. I think, you know, it's there's just, it's like you said, like there's just so many titles out there. And the same thing is true with, you know, trying to do crowdsourcing, whether it's trying to get your app noticed, like all those things. It's a, it is a huge challenge, no doubt about it. Yeah. Like, anyway, um, so pressing forward on the Interplay days, um, what would you say was your first major project um, there? That, oh, that'd be that would be uh, Planscape Torment, actually. That's why I was brought to the studio. They just got the Planscape license, mm -hmm. and they spent spent quite a deal of money on it, and they didn't have a team working on it. So uh, when I first got there, the studio director, uh, Marco Green, who was a fantastic writer, by the way, he did uh, he did a writing for a lot of the talking heads in Fallout 1 and Fallout 2. He's, he's quite good. Um, he uh, He's like, hey, so um, if you were to pitch me a Planescape game, uh, what kind of game would it be? And I'm like, well, I'm glad you asked. I think it'd be really cool if the game started after the death screen. And he's like, tell me more. And then I got hired. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> oh, I mean, uh, short process. Like, uh, I suppose, um, well, Planescape Torment is one of my favorite uh, RPGs, of, of well, one of my favorite games of all time. Oh, thank you. No problem. Uh, in fact, um, we um, revisited Planescape when uh, Beamdog uh, was doing the extended yep. edition or um, the um, remastered edition or whatever they're calling it. It was the enhanced edition, yeah. They actually uh, brought, brought me on to work on that, and uh, I finally got a chance to edit all those bad files that had the most <laughs> embarrassing run of spelling errors I think I've ever seen. I. I didn't know how to spell internment, which, you know, for a Planescape game is actually used quite a bit. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of embarrassing stuff there. So they gave me a chance to fix all that. And I'm, I'm really thankful to them. Yeah, yeah. We had them on the show last season about uh, the game. Oh. <laughs> and, yeah, it was like, and even did a review of it. Uh, it's over an hour long. Like, but yeah, uh, I liked what, uh, what was done with the game. I'm like... Uh, it's the best of uh, of their remakes so far. Like, and that's not just down to well, they're better about um, remastering these things technically because they had a lot of problems in like the Baldur's Gate games. I heard the uh, the Icewind Dale one was pretty solid, but I never actually got a chance to play it. Yeah, I, I think we talked about that, but you know. It, these these things being months ago, the information the information gets foggy. Yeah, no, I hear you. <laughs> oh, but um, so, what was it like working on Planescape Torments? I mean, were you really excited um, finally uh, getting to do your dream, or were you nervous? Uh, I was pretty terrified most of the time. Um, like I uh, I thought I was going to get fired on more than one occasion. Uh, the word count was really high, uh, which was a big problem for the localization team. And and for anyone who's not familiar with what the localization team does, they're the ones that translate all the many, many words into other languages, uh, which can get pretty expensive, especially when you consider Planescape. Uh, so there was that. Um, we had a very small team compared to Baldur's Gate, so everyone was kind of uh, wearing a lot of hats and running on fumes in that respect. I was pretty tired most of the time. A lot of, I, 
guaranteed a lot of health issues popped up as a result of just trying to work too hard. I didn't see many people outside the office, but I really, really loved working on the game and just about every, just about everything involved with it was fun. Just from inventory item descriptions to like doing area design docs or, or just, you know, it's just even just playing the game. We just had a blast doing it. So I, I look back on those times really fondly. Well, it sounds like it. Like, um, and what would you say was the biggest challenge in um, uh, creating Planescape torments? Um, trying to decide at what point the DND, this is going to sound strange, at what point the DND rules really mattered. Um, <laughs> and uh, the reason was just because so many of the Planescape stuff had to do with, uh, you know, what you believed was reality. So you could actually alter the the quote-unquote law of D&D physics whenever you wanted to if you wanted to make a point, which was really freeing, but also was kind of scary at the same time. So there was a lot of stuff that we adjusted about the mechanics that we thought would just make for a a more fun narrative experience. I, I would argue that the combat portion of it wasn't terribly great, but I still think that people had fun with it. You're not wrong uh, uh, on those accounts. Like, uh, the combat has been consistently derided uh, for as long as I can remember. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> like, but you know, and I've heard uh, like uh, Planescape praised in terms like it's the best book you'll ever play. Exactly. Yes, I've heard that quite a bit. That, that, that's not far off from the truth either. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, and yeah, D and D rules were becoming a real problem in Second Edition because. Well, uh, for those who don't know, who really didn't experience a lot of second edition, uh, it really wasn't a unified field anymore. It was becoming more and more a, uh, like a set of different universes that were becoming increasingly incompatible. And of course, this means that uh, if you had power gamers, which you did, <laughs> they were they could like pull oh and I'll use this ability from Ravenloft and this ability from Al Kadim and when I combine those together I can get my armor class down to because <laughs> in those editions having a low armor class was good some kind of ridiculous number right <laughs> <laughs> I'm like did you do this yourself I did not but I read a lot of stories about it when I was first getting into actually I was getting into third edition a little bit and right. about like why why there why there's a third edition now and some of it was the OGL stuff and some of it was just uh we figured we needed to pull it back in a little which is true <laughs> I, I mean incompatibilities were starting to show up there in first edition like mm -hmm. like um Dragonlands comes to mind and it's weird rules but uh yeah second edition yeah Al Kadim was really different than say Spelljammer Really different from Ravenloft, Dark Sun, and so on and so forth. So it's understandable that the um, standard rules would be hard to implement in something as arcane as Planescape. Yeah, you know, actually, I think it may have helped that we weren't allowed to reference any other campaign setting because the way um, uh, TSR slash Wizards of the Coast uh, sort of divvied up the franchise. They actually gave different worlds to different developers, so there wasn't a lot of overlap. So, in some respects, that actually worked <laughs> worked in our favor. Uh, but yeah, there were a lot of crazy rules to each different setting, and trying to make those mesh sometimes. I can't imagine how many programmer heads must have split, been split down the middle trying to do it. 
It's a little weirder for Planescape and Spelljammer, which are kind of meta settings. Yep. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, Planescape and Spelljammer can get really complex if if you're, you know, junctioning the other rule campaigns there. I mean, obviously in Torment, you're mostly in Sigil and then in Sigil-adjacent planar things, but theoretically in Planescape, part of it is, oh, hey, there's this uh, whole bunch of different bunch of different worlds on the prime material plane or different prime material planes that you can visit yes that's uh opens up a huge can of worms the uh you know and actually uh i i feel like the the landscape thing we just focus a little maybe a little too much on sigil but we just figured because it was sort of going to be the introductory game that we should probably make make sure that people understand the city but i think the fact we didn't go to many other planes was kind of a kind of a negative i wish we'd had more time to sort of expand the universe a bit more Unfortunate, uh, especially since, you know, I liked the setting all the way back to um, its first edition incarnation. Um, Once again, for those who don't know, um, Planescape was born out of this book called The Manual of the Planes, um, which is a first edition source book. I think I still got that lying around somewhere. Because back then they were still making up for the rules of, okay, uh, before they would have had genies summoned from su- from summoned from another plane and demons from another plane, and then the Manual of the Planes <laughs> was the first book that said, "Okay, so here's what those other planes are and what you find there." Basically, and it lays out, um, you know, the elemental planes and all of the um, god planes and all that stuff. Yeah. Outer planes, yeah. Yeah, the outer, outer planes, planes and the inner planes. Yeah, and then there's the astral plane and the ethereal plane and material and all that stuff and um it's planescape incarnation its core is pretty much the same except they you know what they really changed was um they added sigil like um uh, back in the plane manual of the planes there was a place called uh a concordant opposition you know the land of true <laughs> neutrality um home of the lizard man god if i'm remembering correctly like and then in second edition, it became, you know, the most nonsensical city you'll ever find. Like, you know, the, the, the city of infinite doors, the city that stands atop an infinite spire, however that works. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even joking about that. that no, I, no I, 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 I was like, wow, the central, the central feature of this setting is a, is a donut atop a spire, and that's where <laughs> everybody lives. They live on the inside of the hollowed-out donut. I'm like, all right, this is going to be interesting. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, it sounds like there were, at one point, plans to do a Planescape sequel. Uh, yeah, it was discussed really briefly. Uh, I think after numerous doctor visits, though, I think uh, I just did not have the energy to keep pushing on that. I mean, there were some, there were some ideas kicked around for it, but I don't know if any of them really would have been um, the best direction to take the franchise. And I, I think the first game pretty much stood on its own. There were plans to do a PlayStation game at one point, but that sort of fell through, and their team sort of got incorporated into... Um, the Torment team, and then also got moved over to, I think, Stonekeep 2, which uh, was just a managerial train wreck, so, uh, you know, at least Torment came out. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if, yeah, like, Stonekeep 2, uh, what was like five years of development and nothing to show for it? Yeah, I mean, they had some really beautiful art. I think they had a really good... Uh, 
um, design direction. I think just getting there, though, I, I don't know what the issue was. I think just the idea of, you know, doing um, so all, ga all games run on an engine like Unreal or Unity. However, trying to make an engine on your own is a very difficult task. And it's something that Black Isle never really managed to do. Like they couldn't. Um, just couldn't make that happen. So that's why so often they had to use BioWare's Infinity Engine, or they tried to use, you know, a Monolith Lift Tech Engine, just because they didn't have the capability to make one on their own. They tried to do it uh, for uh, Baldur's Gate 3 and Fallout Van Buren, but I'm really not sure how far along that engine really, really got, or how far it would have gone. So. I think based on like the um, beta version of uh, Van Buren, it, it got pretty far, but obviously not far enough. Yeah, I think it was enough for uh, to do the to do a, a demo, but uh, and a lot of that was borrowed from work that was done on um, the BG3 engine. Uh, yeah, I guess the weird thing was I think that the you know upper management had already decided to cancel it like months earlier, so I think those guys just ended up laboring in vain. And to be honest, once Baldur's Gate 3 was canceled for no good apparent reason, like the idea that, you know, Van Buren would see the light of day was pretty remote, which was really sad, especially if you have, you know, so much love invested in Fallout and then suddenly you realize that, you know, <laughs> even if you work as hard as you, hard as you did on Baldur's Gate 3, you know, circumstances beyond your control will cancel it. So that was pretty, pretty grim. Yeah. I'm like, I'm trying to think of the exact reason. I think it had to do with the license itself. Because I remember there was a lot of friction between Interplay and uh, Wizards by that point. Yeah, I'm, pro I'm pretty sure Interplay probably wasn't paying the bills. I, I do think, I, if I recall correctly, and I don't know how much of this is true, it's just what we were told, is uh, or, or how the story got skewed. And maybe someone, you know, wasn't intentionally lying. They were just describing in their own words. But... Uh, what the way it was described to us was an accounting error. <laughs> it wasn't that they were unhappy necessarily with anything we were doing. It's just, well, someone didn't pay a bill or a zero got misplaced. And that was all the excuse someone needed to take it and do something else with it. So there you go. Hmm. Makes sense. Well, and that uh, company that eventually took the ball was Atari. Yep. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, but, uh, okay, outside of Planescape, what else did you work on uh, during the Black Isle days? Uh, let's see. Uh, I had the chance to work on Fallout 1, but had to turn it down, which sucked. Uh, but I did work on Fallout 2 after uh, uh, Tim Kaine and Leonard Bjarski and Jason Anderson went off to form Troika and work on Arcanum. Um, so we worked on Fallout 2, uh, worked on the Icewind Dale series, um, uh, my God, is my head. Is, uh, and then, of course, Baldur's Gate 3. Uh, and I was worked on Lionheart for a little bit, which was a weird experience. And then um, also during that, during like the last three or four years of Interplay, uh, I also was doing a lot of pen and paper design for uh, the first iteration of Fallout Van Buren. And, you know, I had all the design documents, you know, all the trait and skill systems set up and the perks. Like, hey, here's how the ghoul player character will work. The super mutant player character will work. Here's the areas. Here's the cool stuff we're going to do. You know, some of that stuff you were able to use in New Vegas. But uh, it was really sad to say goodbye to that stuff at the time. Uh, I don't doubt it. I mean, it was sad to see Van Buren um, not be a thing. I'm like... I'll be honest, there are people who are still not over that. Uh, 
um, especially because they don't like the um, Bethesda era Fallout games. Um, but you know, such is life, I suppose. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed working on it. The uh, it was really tough being like a being like the only developer on it because I was like, well, what the hell do I do? Like, I don't have a great deal of programming experience, and I wouldn't even call it programming. I call it more like basic level scripting. The uh, so I'm like, okay, well, I'll just go back to my pen and paper roots and go, hey, how much of this can I just paper prototype? And what I'll do is I'll just take people in the company that are likely to work on Van Buren. Uh, I'll, I'll see if they want to be players in the campaign, and then I'll we'll just keep playing and playing and try and develop the game, so that when it you know does finally happen, we can all hit the ground running, and they'll already be familiar with you know where it's going, like you know player character setups, the rules, and that was that was a lot of fun. There was like about uh, ten or twelve people across two campaigns, um, and they didn't even know they were in the same campaign world at first. They thought they were running two completely different Fallout campaigns until they suddenly noticed. They kept hearing a lot about another group out there doing things, and they're like, "Hey, wait a minute!" And then, uh, <laughs> so that, that that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed working on that. That actually sounds like an interesting way to develop a world for a video game is by, or for an art for a role playing game is by like dummying it out with. Because one of the limitations about a video game role playing thing, obviously, is that there are some limitations on the choices you can make because. There is absolutely no way to program for everything that people will do in pen and paper. That is correct. But but uh, but, but if you run it first in pen and paper, you can try to you'll come up with ideas you would never come up with otherwise for some of the things that people might want to do. Yeah, and I totally agree. And that's exactly what happened. Um, there were like twelve different character archetypes. Like, okay, so we had the we had like the super mutant, uh, you know, Nightkin stealth character. Like how. When you have a character like that, your responsibility as a GM is like, okay, well, how do I make the adventure exciting for this character? And because there were 12 different archetypes running around in these campaigns, it really stretched what each area had to consider in a good way. Like sometimes the players would think of better quest solutions or more interesting quest solutions than, you know, I'd ever spec'd out. And that just became part of our notes for, oh, okay, well, when we, when we do the final version of this area, we definitely should do X, Y, and Z based on what you guys were doing in the adventure because that's cooler than what's actually there. And that, that helped a lot. I suppose that begs the question, was there ever a plan to develop like an official Fallout um, pen and paper campaign setting? Uh, I don't think there was a lot, of, a lot of talk about it, maybe just because computer games just, you know, made so much more. I, I do know there was a pen and paper game for Fallout Tactics. It was more sort of like, a, you know, tabletop tactical game as opposed to a role-playing game. But uh, no no actual Fallout, you know, uh, you know, hardbound rulebook version of it. I'm sure people would have been interested in it, but I don't think there were the resources there to to make it happen or the inclination from people high up to make it happen. That is actually a shame. You know, yeah. It is, it is. You know, I'll be honest, I, I I would like to play Fallout in a pen and paper setting. You know, I think it would work well, but uh, that would be up to Bethesda now. Right. At any rate, um, you also mentioned you worked on a game called Lionheart Legacy of the Crusader. And you mentioned it so as a weird experience. Yeah, uh, managerially, but not not on. So it was developed by a studio called Reflexive. Um, Reflexive was not the odd part of that equation. The odd part was me and another designer and a programmer were sent over there to help 
but the sort of direction we got um, from within Black Isle production was really just confusing. Um, so we tried to help as best we could. We're like, hey, here's how we script out dialogues, and here's how often we do skill checks, and why we do these skill checks here, here, and here. Um, here's how to structure a dialogue. So does it go like, you know, too far afield? Because if you try and write a dialogue that's too organic, uh, it can get away from you, especially in a role-playing game. So you have to be careful about how you sort of like trim the branches. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, one of the designers was like helping around, I believe, inventory items and another one was helping out with um, uh, programming some aspect of the code, I don't recall. But eventually uh, it got so confusing as to what we were supposed to be doing over there that I was like, I actually sort of mandatorily just went and go, you know what, I'm I'm coming back <laughs> to Black Isle rather than going to Reflexive every day. And I am going to work on Van Buren because I don't think you have a clear direction for what you want us to do at the studio, nor are you watching it very carefully. So I, I am going to withdraw from this situation. Like that's, that would explain everything, honestly, because I've actually played Lionheart and ooh, um, once you got out of the first chapter, it, it, it kind of fell apart. Um, it, uh, it had a lot of challenges again, coming from uh, the black Isle direction. Like they, they couldn't get, uh, reflexive paid on time i believe I, there was a some huge interview about it with um with uh, one of the uh, developers that reflect maybe one of the owners i don't recall exactly but yeah they were having trouble getting paid which is which is really rough <laughs> that's the only project your studio is working on and it's yeah it was not a i felt bad for those guys <laughs> well they managed to at least to survive the development of lionheart that um, is true you know, it's like um Though they, they don't exist now for whatever reason Amazon decided to disband them for. Unfortunate, but uh, moving forward. So what precipitated your departure from uh, Black Isle slash Interplay? Was, was it something you decided or, or was it something that was decided for you? Oh, no, it was, uh, it was just about everybody that left at that time. It was... It was their decision. They just knew that uh, after Bal it was it was not long after Baldur's Gate three got canceled. And really, the only thing that was keeping most people there was because it switched over to Fallout. But then again, like you just weren't sure Fallout was ever really going to happen. So, yeah. So at that, I just turned in my resignation letter, and uh, you know, it's you know, it's really weird. Like they didn't even ask me. <laughs> they didn't even ask me like you know why I was resigning. They were just more interested. And if someone else was poaching me, <laughs> like it, it was so, it was so short-sighted that I'm like, I can't believe I'm having this conversation with you. Like, if you don't understand what's going on in your own divisions to the point where that's your question, you're going to ask me in an exit interview. Maybe it's it's really good that I'm leaving right now because your priorities are all fucked. <laughs> I would say that would be a correct assessment, considering, yeah, the shit really hit the fan uh, with Interplay in 2004. <laughs> like, so. Uh, did you immediately go to, uh, Obsidian afterwards or did you work elsewhere? Uh, I worked uh, with, with a company that did Dark Alliance games for Black Isle. Um, it was a company called Snowblind. They did the first Dark Alliance game and, uh, they were doing a Champions of, uh, Norath, uh, EverQuest game in that same style. And they asked if I would come in and, uh, help script doctor it. And I'm like, sure, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And uh, that was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And then uh, after that, I transitioned over to Obsidian, although 
you know, the, the freelancing was pretty nice. I mean, it was pretty relaxing. <laughs> I mean, we'll probably be getting back to that uh, soon enough. Oh. Foreshadowing. Anyway, um, so I suppose the, uh, the same question applies with Obsidian. Uh, what did you end up working there when you got there? Uh, the first thing was uh, Knights of Republic 2. Um, and then after that, I worked on Companions for Neverwinter 2. Uh, and then just about uh, pitched in or, you know, advised on almost every other project in the studio, except possibly for Armored Warfare and um, and uh, Skyforge. Uh, but beyond that, like, uh, yeah, it, when you're a creative director, you get to sort of just examine, advise, and give feedback on a lot of the design documents um, taking place at the studio. Uh, did you enter into that role when you got to Obsidian, or is that something uh, that happened later? They, uh, that was the role that I was brought on. Uh, th that was a title that I was going to be having at the company. It, it was kind of, um, it was sometimes really ill-defined, and attempts to get it defined were not... Uh, encouraged <laughs> uh so what what would end up happening is like uh okay well uh, you know I, I i can function pretty well when it you know when i need to reach a, a destination point but what ended up being easier because strangely enough these other titles had more hierarchy and structure uh because i'd laid them out I would do things like, okay, well, I'm going to be lead designer on this or creative lead on this or a level designer on that. And then that would set the structure very clearly. Like I knew who, like I would talk to about the vision for the game. Uh, I would know like who my like level design lead would be. I would get uh, help out with standards, but I'd know what those standards were. At all other times, uh, it just became nebulous when it wasn't, wasn't one of those roles, which would occasionally get frustrating. Mm. Right, and uh, there's quite a bit to cover here. Like, um, what was your, uh, what was the best project you would say you worked on at uh, Obsidian, and what ended up being the most challenging? Um, well, I liked working on um, uh, Knights of the Republic 2. I don't think it was the best title um, that came out from Obsidian by a long shot, mostly because I, you know, I wasn't wasn't finished. <laughs> the uh, and you know I, I laugh, but uh, inside I I weep. Um, the the one that I think is probably the most solid though that I really enjoyed was I really enjoyed Mass the Betrayer. I thought that for for an expansion for Neverwinter two, I thought it hit all the right notes. It was in a a different setting of the Forgotten Realms that people weren't as familiar with and it was more interesting. And the companion design was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed working with uh, Tony Evans, one of the designers, and uh, George Zeitz, who was also working on that title. And uh, I've had the chance to work with George a number of projects over the years and I just really like his design aesthetic. I think he's really talented. I've heard a lot of praise over uh, Mask of the Betrayer. Uh, over the years uh, like um not just like it's the best expansion but uh, people have considered it to be the best um part of neverwinter nights um period yeah i w i wouldn't disagree with that i think storms of here went in a different direction i personally don't think that direction was a bad one but people have the expectation of wanting more Neverwinter 2 and Mass of the Betrayer content. So I think Storm of, Storm of Zaheer sort of defied their expectations. 
I suppose that's uh, unfortunate. Like, um, if they were expecting, you know, everything to line up with, like, Master the Betrayer, considering, you know, different teams were doing different expansion packs and modules. Yeah, it was always just a smaller team and a smaller team. And, you know, that was the same old story back at Black Isle. You really can't, you really have to be careful if you're turning out products that way. Because, uh, you know, a smaller team just means you... You, know, you can't have full companions. Like you can't, you can't match all those expectations because you don't have the work crew to actually get that done, and it, and it can end up hurting the project. So you have to be careful with that. Even if you think you're making a great business decision, which you know often you aren't, uh, it's it can absolutely hurt the projects and the reputations of the company. Right. And speaking of such things, um. What was it like in the earlier days of Obsidian compared to, you know, um, you know, like the mid, uh, you know, a couple of years ago? Um, it was pretty chaotic. Uh, we didn't have a lot. Well, we had to rely on a lot of support from uh, our publishers when it came to things like audio. Like we didn't really have a audio department or like a full QA, a full QA department. Like we had to you know, rely on contractors that were supplied by the publisher, you know, and, and those guys worked really hard, but uh, it would have been nice to always have like an internal QA team. Like it just makes, it just makes sense, but you have to be able to afford that first. Uh, also, you know, we didn't really have a hardcore IT department uh, early on. Yeah. There were just a lot of challenges. It was, there was a lot of logistics and just trying to get the studio started, um, which made things difficult. But I, I think a lot of those eventually got ironed out. It just took a while. I'm like Obsidian's been around for a good uh, 10 years plus, so they must be doing something right. Yeah, they've gone through their ups and downs. There's been, uh, you know, there, there's the tide of, you know, hiring and, you know, occasionally if a project gets canceled, like, you know, with Stormlands or Armored Warfare, like there will be the the, the large clumps of layoffs, which, you know, it happens at studios. Um, but yeah, there, there has been the sort of the rising tide and the ebb of the tide. So, but they have survived, yeah. And so, uh, moving forward, uh, next game uh, games I see are Alpha Protocol and Fallout New Vegas. Yes, indeed. And um, how involved were you with these uh, games? Uh, let's see, with Alpha Protocol, I came in halfway through production when they sort of went in a new direction. Uh, they sort of reorganized the project. Uh, and then I came on as sort of lead designer and then uh, creative lead. Uh, someone else was handling system design, and our project director, uh, Chris Parker, was sort of in charge of the the overall design and the systems. And then I kind of just handled the story. And uh, we worked with Sega on that. Sega really didn't have a lot of issues with the storyline. I think their issues were mostly with just the uh, the mechanics of the game. So that. Uh, and, and plus, uh, you know, Alpha Protocol had a share of challenges. Like, I, I'm really proud about that title. Um, but clearly, like, if you measured that against Splinter Cell or Mass Effect 2, like, both of those games, like, blew Alpha Protocol, like, out of the water easily. And that's even if Alpha Protocol didn't have the issues that it did. So it, I'm, I'm proud of the work on it. Uh, I do recognize that we are probably a little out of our element on that. And there were a lot of X factors that we had to learn that other companies had already figured out in their titles. And I think that definitely showed. Couldn't speak to that because I, I have Alpha Protocol. I just haven't gotten around to playing it yet. Like, uh, so many games, so little time. Right. But uh, th that's definitely what I've heard about Alpha Protocol 
um, back in the day. Like I, I remember Mass Effect 2 being used as a pretty big measuring stick against it. Oh yeah, well Mass Effect 2 was was freaking great. Like you're just like the cinematic conversations, like they had their whole pipeline down, like they figured a lot of stuff out from you know Coder 1 and then also like Mass Effect 1. Like they had their they had their process down really good and they, you know, could focus on the content for us like we were just playing catch up and it definitely showed. Uh, that is unfortunate. Like uh, uh. Because, uh, as I understand it, uh, Alpha Protocol did not do too well in the marketplace. I actually don't know. I mean, I'm going to agree with you there, and so that's probably the most, that's most likely the case. Uh, it certainly didn't merit a sequel. Sega seemed to know pretty quickly on they wouldn't want to do a sequel uh, for I, I don't even know if I know all the reasons, but I'm sure the fact that it it kind of like didn't make a splash was definitely part of that. Mm. Well, um. Like, maybe one day they'll uh, change their minds. Yeah, that's entirely possible. That'd be nice. I do know that, uh, you know, it usually depends. Like, you know, companies like Sega or just big publishers, sometimes they they rotate through various executives, and each of them has a, has a different plan or a way of, you know, using past franchises. So, you know, who knows? It could it could absolutely work out. I know that uh, I think it'd be fun to work on another Alpha Protocol. Um, I, I think that would just I think be a lot of fun. And we are certainly now more more than ever in an era of, and that thing that you thought everyone had forgotten about is getting a sequel for some reason. <laughs> That's very true. Or remake or whatever. Yeah, I mean, um, like over the weekend, uh, a new Nightmare Creatures game got announced. Uh, I'm like, the hell? A- <laughs> that was my reaction. Same here. Like, I saw this. I'm like. Wow, that's a thing I haven't thought about in about 20 years, <laughs> however long it's been. And like, now it's been raised from the dead. <laughs> pretty much. Apparently like, death is not sacred in this industry. You know, I mean, <laughs> not in the game industry, it's not. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, we've got Bubsy coming back, and that's, uh, not even the most, that's not even the most inexplicable resurrection I've seen from that developer. That goes to the great Gianna sisters. Like, yeah, because at least Bubsy everyone's heard of, even if it's for mostly bad reasons. The great Gianna sisters is only something uh, you'll know about if you're really into, like, the Commodore 64 scene. Or you're mm-hmm. European or something like that. <laughs> European. <laughs> well, it's a, um, it was basically uh, an answer to Super Mario Brothers. And um, it, it, hence, design... hence, hence, Italian sibling pair. Yeah, I'm like, and its design was re- was way too close to Super Mario Brothers for Nintendo, and they actually got the game off the market. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, but anyway, um, and uh, so Fallout New Vegas. Uh, what concepts from Van Buren did you manage to um, get into this title? Uh, there was a number of things. Um, the the visual jo- visual design for uh, Joshua Graham came from that. To the whole idea of the the the, the burn man's look, uh, the idea that the Nightkin were going crazy because of stealth boy technology was scrambling their brains. Um, the the boulder the original name for the big empty was I mean Old World Blues was was the Boulder Dome where it had all the science facilities stored there and the uh, the one in Old World Blues ended up being smaller but the basic concept 
including the intro movie almost verbatim <laughs> uh, came from uh, came from Van Buren. Um, although I think in I think in Van Buren the big empty was actually like some robotic military training facility for soldiers and the Boulder Dome was something different. So for old world blues, they just mashed the two together. Um, the enemy in Dead Money, Elijah, was originally a companion and he was a good guy in uh, Van Buren. I'm trying to think what else. Uh, there was oh, and the, the whole idea of the the Brotherhood of Steel and CR War, the you know, caravan mafia families, um, all that stuff. We would, and Caesar's Legion in name, not the, not the final implementation, which was a lot different. Uh, all of that uh, sort of had had its roots in um, in Van Buren. It sounds like sounds like quite a bit actually. Yeah, and also like Hoover Dam. Although Hoover Dam and uh, Van Buren was actually more of a town. Like all the wreckage that had piled up behind the dam and the Colorado River, people had like built built sort of like a dock-like settlement in Van Buren, and that was sort of one of the big NCR. Uh, central locations. Like, and um, like, how, how much would you say was um, new content versus recycled in New Vegas? Oh, I think new content was a lot. Uh, you know, at least at least seventy percent. I think a lot of the changes just came about by the fact that Vegas was going to be the signature city. And there needed to be a lot of content to sort of reinforce um, reinforce its presence in the area, why it's there, uh, the power dynamics. Um, a lot of the quest lines for NCR and Caesar's Legion also had to feed into that. Um, and Mr. House, uh, who I believe was a creation by John Gonzalez, the lead writer. And I, I love Mr. House, and I, John, John's a great guy. He worked on um, Shadows Upper Mordor. And also, he did the writing for most recently uh, Horizon, Zero, Horizon Zero Dawn, and did a fantastic job there. Yeah, he's a he was great to work with. Um, yeah, so there there was there was a great deal of new content made for for New Vegas. Um, uh, absolutely, sounds like it. And um, one thing I've been uh, wondering about is um, was there a particular reason why Bethesda approached um, Obsidian to work on a Fallout game? I think they just thought it was probably a really good fit. I, I do know Bethesda was work, was reaching out to a number of studios that had particular specialties. Like they 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 reached out to In Exile to do Demons Forge. They reached out to Splash Damage, I believe, for Brink. Um, they 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 sort of like were looking to bolster their portfolio, I, I believe. Like, and I'm I'm not a I'm not a biz dev guy, so I couldn't tell you exactly all the reasons. But I think they just wanted to to see what other properties and franchises they they could grow using developers that were skilled in those areas and i, I if i were them i would have looked at obsidian and go well you know these guys aren't really great at creating their own technology just like black isle wasn't but you know they create really good content on top of someone else's engine so maybe there's a good fit there so i think i i, I would be surprised if that didn't factor into their thinking nor would i and i i suppose that flows into the question of uh, how troubled the development process was on uh, New Vegas. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if it was really that troubled. Um, I think some of the the earlier titles, just a, a last lack of resources and um, uh, optimistic projections, probably 
were more had more trouble development than New Vegas did. I I, I don't recall New Vegas, uh, you know, being especially rush, rushed or a chore or I it just seemed to be a title that overall I don't look back on and go, oh, you know, wow, that was well, that was a nightmare. Not at all. But New Vegas, um, I feel like it, uh, you know, it doesn't have any, I guess, any alarm bells when I remember it. <laughs> it's good to hear because I remember there was a lot of rumbling about New Vegas back in the day because um, how do I put this? It's a Bethesda title. Like, and <laughs> Bethesda titles are not known for being um, stable out the gates. I mean, it could be worse. Fallout 3 on PC is literally unplayable unless you rip the games for Windows Live DRM out. Yeah, fair enough point. Like, but yeah, it's like... I just remember a lot of people um, complaining about how buggy the, the game was. You know, them not being presumably all that familiar with, um, like I said, Bethesda RPGs. There's nothing against them. It's just, you know, with their RPGs being so big, they tend to be very buggy. Yeah, um, I guess that's something I'd say about just RPGs in general, depending on how you design them. Uh, if you ever give, and I'm not, I'm not citing Obsidian as a specific example of this. I've seen this happen in plenty of places. But when you give a developer who's not as familiar with the engine technology they're being given, um, there's, whole, there's a whole bunch of secrets in there that developers know about uh, that that an external developer might not know about. And we had that issue with Snowblind back on Black Isle where like their engine was very, very difficult to figure out and we needed their help to decipher a lot of the stuff. The stuff that we just never would have known to ask if, if they were not available. Um, so there's, there's that challenge. And then it's exactly what you said about RPGs. Like there's so many permutations for how people can play the game. And that's if if QA is actually allowed to play the game. And what I mean by that is often QA is broken down into testing very specific things. Um, like they might test the critical path and only the critical path, or someone might be assigned to run through every door in the game on every build. Like crazy tasks like that isn't the same thing as someone playing a game and then encountering an issue that a regular player might encounter just a normal playthrough. And that's why having team members just sit down and play the game is sometimes, it's really important because they, they'll go with the flow of being a role-playing game player and are likely to find out things that QA either doesn't have the numbers for or uh, they just haven't been tasked to do. And like QA has got enough to do on every single project that comes out. Like they work really hard. Yeah. Being a game tester, especially for a large, large PG, is probably the closest thing you can get to hell on this planet. Yeah, some people get really excited about the prospect, and I'm like, look, <laughs> please please keep in mind that you will not be playing a finished product for most of the experience, and you may be doing some very unusual things as a tester that aren't even remotely fun. Yeah, <laughs> so a, lot, a lot of people scared. seem to think testing involves, oh man, I get to play the games before everybody else does it. They, they, that's not what it is. Exactly. Well, yeah. Uh, it's technically true, but oh, are your expectations uh, way off base? <laughs> oh, no, no. Like, um, but uh, anyway, well, it's good to hear that um, uh, development was relatively smooth on uh, New Vegas. I'm like, uh, I um, was Bethesda pleased with the overall product? 
I I guess so. Um, I I actually do not know. I never. I still to this day don't know how much it sold. Um, I actually don't necessarily know what the reception was on a number of fronts. I do know that uh, I'm very proud to have worked on it. Uh, I really like working on the DLCs too, um, and I'm. I think it was a, a good product for Obsidian to do. I think it uh, it brought them a lot of notice that they weren't necessarily getting from other projects. I um, like it. It's hard to gauge because we really haven't seen an external um, Fallout project since then. No, um, that's very that's very true. Like beyond beyond you know Fallout Shelter, I don't think I've seen anything. <laughs> But then again, um, games are so much bigger than even they were just a generation ago. And, uh, Fallout 4 comes to mind. At any rate, um, so moving a bit forward here, uh, we have Pillars of Eternity and Wasteland 2. And also FTL Advanced Edition. Yes, I love working on FTL. I'm still working with the FTL guys. The uh, the actual company's name is uh, is Subset Games, and they're one of the indie developers I was talking about. FTL obviously did really well for them, uh, right. and I, I I loved the I loved FTL so much. Like I, I was like, hey guys, like I'll work on this for free, and they're like, all right, sounds good to us. Um, but then I've they, never actually played that, but I have a lot of friends who yeah, are big fans. <laughs> get get ready to to lose a lot of hours once you fire it up. Cause it, well, it that's, really, that's, that's why I haven't, I've never said, <laughs> you know, if I play this game, I'm probably going to want to spend about four hours in a row and I yep. uh, haven't had that. Yep. I, that's very true. Uh, they're doing a new game called, uh, into the breach, which uh, I'm working on with them. And they're, it's like giant max beating up by insects in a uh, world of the, the edge of destruction. So it's uh, it's got a lot of the elements of FTL in terms of uh, replayability, and it's it's a lot of fun. I, yeah, I've played a bit of FTL, but uh, wasn't my thing. Like, I don't know, it, it's like I tend not to play roguelikes too much. Like, uh, I think that's just a personal thing. But yeah, <laughs> certainly are a lot of. Uh, a lot of stuff about FTL, um, especially since it was like one of the shining lights of the early Kickstarter. Movement. Yeah, it went. Uh, it, it did. Uh, it was definitely uh, something that stood out on on crowdsourcing, and it did very well. Like I think uh, Divinity is another one. Yeah, it was back in the days when we could actually get noticed on on Kickstarter. It's kind of it's kind of a lot more difficult nowadays. Well, there are reasons for that. Um, it. it, it it it's a lot of um, poisoned well water at this point. You know, like good or bad, there have been a number of high-profile Kickstarter projects um, that have soured people on the entire idea of crowdfunding. Like, and I know it's hit the video game segments especially hard because um, it's not it's not a thing that's happening in other like um board games and card games um they're they're doing really well on kickstarter from what i've heard but video games yeah it, it's been a bit of a, a slowdown 
Yeah, video games are, uh, I mean, not that board games are easy at all. And to play, I would never say that, um, especially if you if you have to contract out like, you know, tokens or game pieces and getting that whole process squared away can be, a, you know, a pain in itself. But uh, yeah, video games by nature, like they're tricky beasts. And if it's the first time you've done a certain type of game, like you have no idea, like, you know, what could possibly go wrong because you've just never been through the process before. And that's that's something that people just have to keep in mind. Like there's, there's going to be a lot of gotchas in there for the developers and you should be prepared for those, uh, those eventualities. Yeah, Plus some people are backing a thing for nostalgia things and then forget that nostalgia is exactly the way that it was. And then they don't like what they get, even though it was exactly what they were promised. Yeah. And, uh, not, yeah. not to name names or anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, when, when they view some games, the eyes of nostalgia, like so we had this issue on system shock, like we, so I'm sorry, I'm working on the uh, system shock reboot uh, right. with, night dive and the 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 original system shock one like you know doesn't even have free mouse look like i bet money people have forgotten all about that but that's something you wouldn't want to directly translate (laughs) into a new version of system shock no no uh we're actually uh like um uh, steven's actually a pretty good friend of ours and we talked about the system shock remake uh like six months ago i think it's been a measure of time, but yeah, yeah, we, we talked about um, the fact that the um, the original System Shock doesn't have any mouse looking. That, that was the standard at the time. Yeah, like, that's correct. You know, it's like like mouse look really didn't become the stand like like an actual standard until about the time of Quake and Duke Nukem 3D. Yep, that's absolutely true. Like, um, so. What else are you doing on the um, System Shock remake? How is that progressing? Oh, it's going pretty good. The um, the idea is it's not it's not a remaster or a remake. They're actually uh, we're actually adding new content to the game, so like new levels, uh, you know, different setup for the characters, uh, going more in depth on certain story elements, and then uh, that's just the narrative side. Uh, I'm sure Stephen probably could have shared with you all the other stuff that's going on the programming and art side, but. Uh, the love for system shock sure is sure is, is shining through <laughs> yeah I, I remember that you know <laughs> like uh, especially since steven well he founded his company on getting system shock uh, yeah night, night dive i think uh their their whole uh steven steven's kind of goal was that he just didn't want a lot of classics to be forgotten. So he's, uh, he's sort of made sure to sort of resurrect old classics and bring them to the, the modern, modern age of gamer, which I think is a really, that's, that's kind of a really, really cool thing to share with people. And I thought the fact that he's, he's so, he's so primed about it is, is, uh, is it's really inspiring sometimes. No doubt. No doubt. We've, as I said, we've had many conversations on that, um, on, on game preservation because, uh, you know, I'm a historian, so it's something that's near and dear to my heart as well. Especially since um, game preservation isn't all that good. Um, uh, it's getting better. It's definitely getting better, but you know, it's got a long ways to go. And um, this is why, you know, I'll go against the grain um, in terms of the industry and say um, I don't mind. Um, pirated games if they're if they're literally the only thing that's saving a game you know if it's that or oblivion then um, so be it until you know a more legitimate thing can come along 
Well, what I like is uh, just a number of communities that have sprouted up around like sort of maintaining certain games, like with, even with System Shock, to read all the forums for people that, you know, and, you know, Vampire Bloodlines has this too, where it's just like there are so many people out there that are fighting to keep it alive and improving it and making sure that, you know, it works with every single, you know, uh, you know, new iteration of systems or new, you know, download service because they just love the game so much. And that's, that's always really encouraging to see. It's like the players are sort of giving it uh, the life and helping it along when, you know, you know, chances are the original developers or publishers just either don't have the time or the inclination or, you know, it's just so, you know, they've got other things to worry about. But the same players do that for games they love is really awesome to see. Mm -hmm. And it's not just like Night Dive. There are other companies that are um, doing this in one way or another, like um, THQ Nordic. Um, they've bought a whole bunch of old IP, like uh, Novologic. And, you know, they've been preserving things. So it's it's good that this is a thing that's happening, is my estimation. A anyway, um, you, do, you are also working on some other games here, um, like uh, Pathfinder Kingmaker. And um, over to you, Gollix, for this, because you're our Pathfinder guy. <laughs> yeah, I actually, that's the main tabletop thing that I play currently is Pathfinder. And... Uh, I suppose I know the answer, but uh, Kingmaker is one of the published Pathfinder Adventure Paths. So uh, it's not like the first one or anything, and it's certainly not the latest one. So even though I have a pretty good idea, why don't you say why this is the one that was chosen for a video game adaptation? Well, uh, so that's a few reasons. One is, uh, so considering that you play Pathfinder, I think you'll be happy to know that uh, uh, there's, a, there's a great many Russians that apparently love the living hell out of Pathfinder and play a lot of it. Um, and they've been wanting to do a computer game for a while. And they've played Kingmaker across several different game masters and play sessions. And they each have their own individual stories with Kingmaker. And they just love that, love that particular adventure path. And for any listener who's not familiar with an adventure path, as it's like six modules that are all sort of tied together that sort of advance your characters from level one all the way up to, you know, some ungodly level. Uh, Usually and, around 17, because by yeah. that point, you have ninth level spells, and therefore the GM's ability to keep you on a track <laughs> is pretty much entirely dependent on your own good grace. That is exactly true. Um, yeah, so the, they just uh, they love Kingmaker. Uh, Kingmaker is a popular adventure path uh, in, in uh, Pathfinder. Uh, and so it was it was chosen as, why don't we make this the spine, see what we can add to it from our individual game sessions and stories. Is there something more that we can do to flesh out like the antagonist and the plot line? Is there more stuff that we can do telling stories through companion arcs for companions who find in the game? And all of that became really exciting. But I think Owlcat made the smart move where they're like, you know what, rather than make up a story completely from scratch, since this is our sort of our first foray, into the RPG space, uh, you know, and we know RPGs, but we've never actually like sat down and built one exactly like this. Why don't we use this as a foundation to build upon and use its strengths to sort of help us uh, to, to, to make a really good role-playing game? And Kingmaker's uh, a pretty great series of adventure modules, so it seemed yeah. like a natural fit. It's one of the more open-ended ones. Yes. The, uh, the basic plot outline of Kingmaker is basically that you your group of player characters has been 
given royal license to basically <laughs> settle an area that the royals who gave you that license contend was stolen from their kingdom. And obviously there are people living there, so you have to... Uh, people and fairies and stuff. So you yeah, have to... Uh, and nothing nothing would ever go wrong in that scenario, by the no, way. No, like, nothing, nothing at all. Smooth sailing, smooth sailing. And it's also the adventure path that introduced a lot of, for people who like, uh, like civilization simulation stuff, it has a light version of that in that you can sort of plan your towns and stuff. Yeah, so it's you know rather than having just a stronghold, you actually end up having like your your kingdom ends up ends up being the thing that you fiddle with, and uh, that the customization there I think is another another big plus. A lot a lot of RPGs don't always go that far when it comes to quote unquote your stronghold, but with this they they're definitely incorporating a lot of those kingmaker mechanics. So that that was a pretty cool aspect of the title too. And one of the things that I've seen from following the Kickstarter, I actually, I backed that game, is uh, this is one of those games that is very, or one of the adventure paths that is more open to players being kind of whatever alignment you want. Yeah, and you know what? I think with one thing that I really like about Pathfinder is they take that approach with a lot of their modules uh, in the sense that they encourage exploration. Like, there's not always a set series of quest A goes to part B, goes to part C. They they lay out a situation for you, and they give you events to react to or events that you can find through exploration but through the basic rpg stuff that all rpg players do um and they and then they're like and then they like we we trust you to have fun with this and here's a bunch of details that will help you have fun and that's what i like about it mm-hmm. uh you got any more questions there Galix? or um, i could go on for a long time but i figured i'd like <laughs> break it and see if anybody else wanted to say anything Fair enough, fair enough. We'll probably have you back on the show, Chris, as um, Pathfinder Kingmaker makes its way through development. Sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah. I mean, um, but um, we are getting low on time, uh, so just a couple more uh, like uh, segments here. Uh, for example, we you are also working on Divinity Original Sin 2, correct? Yeah, so that comes out in about a week, and uh, that is going to be pretty amazing. <laughs> I I am still staggered by all the cool shit that's in that game. The uh, the the creative director uh, Sven. If there's any person that loves making games and has a whole host of cool ideas for stuff that should go in those games, it's Sven. Uh, Middle we we haven't had Laharian Studios on the show yet, but maybe one day. So, and you know. Uh, sir, um, the um, original, original, original sin, if you will, um, <laughs> seem, you know, seemed to um, have been, you know, it, it was one of the best um, RPGs of 2014. Yep. It, uh, you know, for me, it was uh, one of the things that really stood out was, you know, not the combat was pretty smooth. And then also what I really liked was, there was a lot of stuff that you could do with the dungeon exploration that just felt really easy to do that I, I, it made me, it made me question why things had been so complicated before. Be like, you know, simple things like, you know, being able to use like, you know, the water barrels to douse flames and stuff that seems really basic 
but it just required the right interface and a smooth enough interface to really make that really easy and fun to do. And that that was like only one of the system elements that was in Divinity where I'm like, wow, this is this is a really polished experience. And um, what has changed, been upgraded, um, what have you in the uh, sequel? Oh, there's a lot. Um, so uh, there is a, a lot of fleshing out uh, with the companion backstories. That's that's a lot of what I was involved with, with Original Sin 2. And those have really huge impacts on the plot. Also, the way those companions are designed are a lot different. Uh, Oh God, I don't want to give it, I'm going to do it anyway. For anyone out there who doesn't want to hear a spoiler, just, sh you know, shut your ears for two minutes. <laughs> there is, well, there's one character like, you know, who's possessed by a demon and sometimes a demon takes over your dialogue responses. And when the demon gets really upset, like suddenly all the dialogue responses are all the same because the demon is so insistent about getting its message out. And it sounds crazy, but when you play it, like you feel the fear and you feel the situation of not being fully in control of your own character. And that's a really neat experience. And they, and they do little, they do touches like that with almost all the companions. Like they have um, this mask of the shapeshifter, which allows you to like change your race. And uh, you can add, you can sort of pantomime being any of the other races in the game and get their dialogue options. And it's, it's all this just really, cool stuff to play around with uh, that I don't usually see a lot in RPGs. And I think, I don't know, I think people are really going to enjoy them. Hmm. So, uh, sounds really interesting. I, I'm actually really intrigued with that demon uh, option, as it were. That's, I've, I've seen that come up the other way in, Mega, in some of the Shin Megami Tensei games where you're doing a demon negotiation and just all of the text <laughs> options you get are the same. And it's like... Yep. Well, I don't know if these will all be the same results or different ones, but here we go. <laughs> I imagine uh, the effect's much the same. Like, uh -huh. yeah. Right, um, so are there any other uh, projects you wish to talk about at this time? No, uh, Divinity is uh, coming out uh, September 14th. I just check to make sure that that was the correct date and uh yeah and i think um that's pretty much the the big one on the radar for right now we've already discussed kingmaker um yeah so I, i'm not here to really plug any products i just want to chat with you guys <laughs> no problem no problem uh, you know we just want to make sure everyone you know has their you know business um stated clearly and all that like and yeah um it was wonderful talking to you chris well uh, thanks to you guys for even having me on i appreciate the invite no problem, no problem. We'll definitely have you on in a, um, you know, when Pathfinder becomes more of a thing, because I, I'm sure Galax here will be able to, um, like, like just do that interview himself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, then. That sounds great. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Um, so, once again, um, uh, Chris Avalone, uh, formerly of Obsidian, now a freelancer. Uh, he's working on a number of projects, you know, including Divin Divinity Original Sin 2 out next week. Um, uh, how much is that going for? Is that full price, $40? Yeah, I actually did not check the price before getting on this call, so I actually do not know. But uh, I'm going to guess Google could help out with that. I do not know off the top of my head. <laughs> Here we go. Um, Steam has it for $44.99. Oh, that's a bargain. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good price, um, especially for a fully featured RPG. Yeah, I'm pretty. That's 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 great. 
So, um, yeah, um, that'll about do it. Uh, looking forward to having you on the uh, broadcast again, whenever that may be. Like, we'll, we'll shoot you an invite and all that stuff. Sounds great. Yeah. All right. Um, so, the week ahead. Um, Petty Fan, do you want to go first? Um, well, I guess coming up next, we have Ben Heckendor from the Ben Heck Show on MSP. Hmm. I'm actually looking forward to that. I like his uh, mod videos. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm also just an electronics nerd, so... <laughs> well, yeah, it's right up your alley as well. Uh, anyway, um, coming up on uh, Fragments, uh, let's see. Provided that um, nothing gets delayed, as we mentioned in the opening, um, this Friday we've got a multiplayer session with both Rock of Ages 2 and um, uh, Crash Day Redline Edition, and we're doing reviews of both uh, this upcoming Sunday. Next week we don't uh, have any Tuesday interview, um, but next Wednesday we'll be welcoming Zach Johnson and Kevin Simmon of Asymmetric uh, Publications. Uh, they are the developers of the Loathing franchise, Kingdom of Loathing and the recent release West of Loathing, which we did a review of uh, not too long ago. And I'm looking forward to it. Uh, West of Loathing is one of the best games I've played this year. Like, and uh, I'm really interested to hear how they, you know, how they created such a funny game. So... Until next time, I wish you good gaming. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.